Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn them to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. The 5th century church father, Augustine, wrote the classic book, The City of God. And he writes that there are two cities, they have been formed by two loves. The earthly city, by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And the heavenly city, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Christians live in that tension between two kingdoms. On the one hand, we live and move and work in the city of man. But on the other hand, scriptures like Hebrews 11 and 1 Peter chapter 2 describe Christians as strangers and exiles in a foreign land. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. John 17, Jesus describes his people as being in the world, but not of the world. The book of Daniel is a book written specifically for the encouragement of God's exiled people. In the 6th and 7th century B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of the Babylonian Empire, subdued the Jewish nation, plundered the Jewish temple, took many of the Jews and sent them away in exile from their home, replanting them in other parts of the empire in an attempt to assimilate them and absorb them into Babylon. And Psalm 137 vividly describes their heart's cry as they weep by the waters of Babylon they cry out, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were among the Jewish exiles. They were young teenagers when they were forced to leave their homes and their families and served, forced to serve in the king's court. And one of the amazing things about these young men, how God works through them, is that we see in them an example of how God's people are to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. They really exemplify this. We see how through them how God's people are to live and honor their Lord in the midst of unbelievable pressures to compromise. We've already seen this in Daniel 1 and in Daniel 2, and I've already heard from some of you how helpful those first two chapters have been to you. And my prayer is that God's going to speak powerfully to you again here today in chapter 3 when the heat is really turned up, both figuratively and literally in the lives of these young men. So let's see what happens next. Why don't you stand with me now in honor of the reading of the words of our God, Daniel chapter 3. Holy Spirit says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, and when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. Father, for many in this room, this is a very familiar story. Many learn this story as children. And so, Father, we have... We, I recognize we have a danger of coming to a text so familiar that this could easily go in one ear and out the other. So, Father, I pray that the familiarity of this text to some would not obscure the powerful message that your Spirit has for your people this morning. And for those who are not familiar with this text, maybe it's brand new, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them the truths that are in this passage and so that they might see more of you and your glory and so that they might know what it means for them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week we studied Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that deeply disturbed him. 
And in the dream was a towering, gigantic metal image made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. And suddenly in this dream, a a small stone made without human hands comes and strikes the image on his feet, which results in the collapse of the statue, shattering it to pieces, and the stone begins to grow bigger and bigger until it becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. God reveals the interpretation to Daniel, who then shares it with Nebuchadnezzar. As we saw last week, the statue's golden head represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of Babylon. And then after him will come a series of other earthly kingdoms. But in the days of the kingdoms, the kingdom of God will come. It will come in a small way, like a little stone seemingly insignificant to the eyes of the world. But the coming of this kingdom will signal the beginning of the end of man's kingdoms. Indeed, God's kingdom will supersede all other kingdoms. It will never fade away, and it will fill the earth. And it will be, in the end, the only kingdom left standing. And Nebuchadnezzar is powerfully moved by this revelation. Into chapter 2, leaves us with Nebuchadnezzar on his face in a posture of worship saying to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. That's a pretty impressive confession, isn't it? He's confessing truth about God. He's on his face before God's representative. And this makes chapter 3 all the more surprising as it opens with a persistent defiance of God. A persistent defiance of God. Look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He constructs a towering, gigantic metal image 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Now, if he were simply constructing a memorial to God and a memorial to the revelation that God gave in chapter 2, what materials would he have used to construct this image? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, right? And perhaps next to such a memorial, he would have placed a small stone. That's not what he does. He constructs a metallic image, but it's only covered in one metal. What metal is it? It's gold. Here... Nebuchadnezzar breaks from God's revelation. God said the gold represented Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the kingdom of Babylon, and only the head was gold. But here, Nebuchadnezzar makes this huge image, and he makes the whole thing gold. The point is obvious. This is an act of defiance against God. What Nebuchadnezzar is essentially saying is, God... You say I'm just one in a series of kingdoms? That your kingdom is going to come and shatter them all? I defy that. Forget the silver. Forget the bronze. Forget the iron. Forget the clay. Forget that little stone. This is my life. This is my world. This is my kingdom. It's going to endure forever. I'm going to make the whole thing gold, not just the head. Nebuchadnezzar... He received God's revelation in chapter 2, but he picks and chooses the parts of God's revelation he agrees with, and he discards the rest. He likes the head of gold. That's good. But he doesn't like the rest of the dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar attempts here to forge an alternate reality. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was praising God. He says, you are, you are a God of God's. He was enthusiastic about God, even to the point of bowing low. But it was all temporary, wasn't it? God's revelation hadn't softened his heart, because two verses later, we see him now defying God. And his heart is exposed for what it really is. His heart wasn't softened, it was hardened. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was okay with God, and he was okay with God's word until it stood in the way of what he wanted. Nebuchadnezzar was okay with God being God as long as Nebuchadnezzar got to be Lord. Nebuchadnezzar is like those described in Psalm chapter 2. 
which says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And it's not only megalomaniacal kings that act this way. This is the condition of all sinful men and sinful women. Apart from God's work in our hearts, we are all persistently defiant of God's sovereign lordship over our lives. We we see God's lordship as bondage, and we desire to break free from those bonds and be autonomous. That's always man's natural response to God and his revelation. Indeed, the heart of man was actually aptly summed up by an unbeliever, by Nietzsche, the philosopher Nietzsche, who said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? And I am sad to say that that is a vivid description of so much of what passes for Christianity in America today. You have so many people today who could share in Nebuchadnezzar's chapter 2 enthusiasm about God. They could heartily say with Nebuchadnezzar, you are God of gods and Lord of kings. You can fill stadiums full of thousands of people at a worship rock concert with people jumping up and down and screaming, Jesus, 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 proclaiming their love for Jesus. You can get half the people in this country to identify with Christianity. We should be no more impressed by that than we should be impressed by Nebuchadnezzar's show of enthusiasm for God in chapter 2. Because with so many, the moment God's revelation contradicts what they want, the moment it says something that contradicts their lifestyle, their preferences, their plans, their agenda, their enthusiasm for God wanes, and their defiance is exposed, and their hearts are hardened, and now they become more like the Nebuchadnezzar of chapter 3. They are happy to have Jesus as Savior as long as they still get to be Lord. And anyone who's like that doesn't really love Jesus, no matter how many worship concerts they attend. Because Jesus says in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my what? My word. He will keep my word. But like Nebuchadnezzar, sinful humanity puts itself in defiant judgment of God's Word, discarding whatever goes against our Word. And so we learn from Nebuchadnezzar that you can, as Sinclair Ferguson said, experience temporary spiritual diversion without true spiritual conversion. The great Puritan John Owen aptly describes this common situation. He says, as a traveler... In his way, meeting with a violent storm of thunder and rain, immediately turns out of his way to some house or tree for his shelter. But yet this causes him not to give over his journey. So soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and and progress again. John Owen goes on to write, So it is with men in bondage to sin. They are in a course of pursuing their lusts. The law meets them in a storm of thunder and lightning from heaven, terrifies and hinders them in their way. This turns them for a season out of their course. They will run to prayer or amendment of life for some shelter from the storm of wrath, which is feared coming upon their consciences. But is their course stopped? Are their principles altered? Not at all. So soon as the storm is over, so that they begin to wear out that sense and the terror that was upon them, they return to their former course in the service of sin again. That is the sad condition of the heart of sinful man, ever defiant against God. And that is why true conversion to Christ can only happen through a supernatural miracle of God, changing a hard heart of stone into a heart of flesh. So we see this persistent defiance. We also see in this chapter pressure, the pressure for exiles to conform. Notice at the end of verse 1, where Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image, and where does he set it up? In the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. That recalls Genesis chapter 11, 
where the peoples there also gathered together in the plains of Babylon to construct the Tower of Babel, which was a sign of man's unified defiance against God's revelation. And if you recall from that story, God frustrated man's attempts to build that tower. He disrupted their anti-God unity. He confused their languages and from there divided humanity and scattered them and they went and formed their own cultures and peoples. But look at what Nebuchadnezzar does. He gathers people from all over the empire to gather before this image. And verse 4 refers to this gathering as peoples, nations, and languages. This is like an attempted reversal of the curse at Babel. Nebuchadnezzar gathers the diverse people of the empire in a symbolic demonstration of global unity all united under his religious leadership and his kingship. Notice the repetition in this chapter. You probably noticed it as I was reading it. Verse 2 mentions the long list of bureaucrats, the satraps, prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then in verse 3, it repeats it again. You kind of wish... As you're reading this, why doesn't he just say they or them? But he repeats the whole list again. And then, and then notice the repetition of the instruments in, in verse 5. When you hear the sound of the horn, the, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then in verse 7 and in verse 10, you have the exact same list of instruments repeated. I was tempted while I was reading this just to say those instruments... But this is the word of the Lord, and I'm not going to mess with that. It's there that way for a reason. Yes, it can be actually a little tedious to read. That's not the only repetition in that chapter. It, it mentions this phrase that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, had set up, had set up over and over again. Now, the repetition is a tool that the author is using to communicate something. As you read the chapter... You read the repetition over and over and over and over again. It conveys the sense of conformity, of unity. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's doing this. Everybody is doing this. Now, this is pluralism at its best, is it not? Many people in our country today would love this because what you have here is a gathering of different cultures, different people's groups, different religions and belief systems, and yet they all appear united. They're all getting along. They're at peace. If Nebuchadnezzar could pull this meeting off in the 21st century, he would be lauded as a hero. But what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is not heroic. It's insidious. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar has done. Notice how he has accomplished this unity. He doesn't achieve unity by telling everyone to ditch their gods and their religions. That's what you would think. He doesn't do that. He's fine with people having whatever gods they want. This is a polytheistic empire, polytheistic society here. He's fine with people having whatever gods they want as long as they submit their beliefs and their gods to the religion of the state. If you do that, it will go well with you in Babylon. But refusal to conform, refusal to comply, will bring consequences. You'll be cast into a fiery furnace. You can believe whatever you want. Hey, we're a tolerant nation. But the golden image is supreme, and the word of the king is supreme. Believe what you want. We won't judge you as long as you conform to what we want you to conform to. Sound familiar? Friends, do you not realize that there is enormous pressure for you as a Christian to conform to a culture that is opposed to the core of what you believe in? We live in a culture that wants to champion tolerance and diversity, so they say. A culture that wants to bring people together of diverse religions and backgrounds with the goal that we'll be united and we'll get along a culture that tells you that you can believe whatever you want to believe and you can even be a Christian 
as long as you simply bow and bend in regards to the things the culture deems important. You can be a Christian. That's okay. It's no big deal. Just, just discard your old-fashioned, antiquated views on marriage and just agree that two men can get married. But, but you can still be a Christian. You, you can be a Christian, but, but you need to stop saying that other religions are wrong and you need to stop con- trying to convert people. That's not tolerant and nice. You can be a Christian, but just keep it at home or in the church walls and don't bring it into the workplace. Hey, we're, we're tolerant. We don't judge. We accept everybody. You can be a Christian as long as you shut up about what this book says. There is a growing intensity in the hostility towards Christianity in America to the point now where people are even losing their jobs and getting into trouble with the law because they're living out Christian convictions. And some of you are frustrated about that and you're wondering, what's happening to our country? What's happening, folks, is nothing that Jesus hasn't already told us. He said in John 15, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, if you want to be popular and respected by the world, if you want to be regarded by the world as hip and cool and relevant, you have chosen the wrong religion. If you're a nonconformist Jesus follower who will not bow to the idols of this culture, prepare to be mocked, disliked, ridiculed, and rejected. And that's the least of what happens to the people of God in the world. But American Christians are so hypersensitive and weak, we can't even handle that. Culture doesn't need to threaten us with a fiery furnace to get us to crumble and comply. They just have to threaten us with names. And call us bigots and homophobes. Oh, okay, I'll change. I'll comply. I'll bow. And whole denominations have done this. Let it not be so with us. God in heaven, will you give the church in America spiritual backbone and boldness in the face of a culture that is hating us more and more and more. So we see the persistent defiance of Nebuchadnezzar. We see the pressure to conform. We also see here the power to resist conformity. The power to resist conformity. Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, we don't know where Daniel is during this. Maybe he's out of town. What we do know is that his three friends are there, and they won't bow. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And what is their accusation? Verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. text says these men maliciously accuse the Jews. There's ill intent here. They have a grudge against these three men, probably because they're, they're foreigners. They've been excelling in the king's service. Chapter 2 ended with the promotion of these three men. And the Chaldeans are spiteful and jealous of them. Uh, These guys are so clever. I love how they play on the the buttons. They push the buttons of Nebuchadnezzar here. They they know the right things to say. They're so so clever. These, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. They're making it about Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar... And furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. 
So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? Who is the God? Who will deliver you out of my hands, boys? If there's any doubt what this is really all about, these last words here in verse 15 really should clear everything up for us. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as Lord. He wants ultimate control and sovereignty, and whoever resists his control and sovereignty, he's going to destroy them, and he's going to show everyone who's in charge. He exalts himself above all gods, declaring that no god has the power to rescue them from him. I want you to think about the enormous pressure that these young men were facing. They, they were maybe in their late teens at this point. Everybody else is bowing. All of their peers, all of their colleagues, most important people in the empire, they look at this mighty statue in front of them. The eyes of Nebuchadnezzar boring into them. They can feel the heat of the furnace nearby. What would you have done? How easy it could have been for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to justify compromise. I can imagine them requesting Nebuchadnezzar a minute to talk this over, and then they get in a little huddle. And Shadrach says, listen, we need to be sensitive to the cultural situation and a little more tolerant, a little more relevant. How else are we going to make inroads as missionaries and evangelists if we don't blend in with them? Doesn't the Bible say, be all things to all men so that by all means we might win some for Christ? Meshach says, you know, we're doing a lot of good in Babylon in the name of our God. We can keep doing good if we comply. Besides, how can we be a good witness for God if we're dead? Abednego says, you know, all we need to do is bow on the outside. But on the inside, we'll stay loyal to God. Besides, doesn't, doesn't God not look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart? What's more, their gods aren't even real. Who cares? Teenager in this room, what would you have done? Older person, what would you have done? If you're not sure what you would have done, here's a clue. How have you responded to lesser pressures to compromise in your life? Don't think if you've been living loosely, disregarding the sin in your own life, making little compromises here and there, and blowing it off because it's, it's just tiny, uh, just a little bit of dishonesty here, just a little bit of, of worldliness here. Oh, I'll cherish this sin a little bit here, but who, who cares? No, no one will know. It's a small thing. Friends, don't think that you can consistently live that way with that attitude and then stand firm when the heat is turned up. The reason these three men end up standing strong is because God has been enabling them from the very beginning of their time in Babylon to live with integrity, honoring God in everything, even in small things, even in the food that they put between their lips, as we saw in chapter 1. And then God took them through the trial of chapter 2, as we saw last week, and they lean on the Lord through earnest prayer. Their faithfulness in the smaller trials have prepared them for this, the greatest trial they have yet experienced. As a matter of fact, if they would have given in to Nebuchadnezzar's plan of assimilation back in chapter 1 that we discussed a couple weeks ago, there wouldn't have even been a chapter 3 because these men would have bowed from the very beginning. They would have compromised. They would have been just like everyone else. And so let's... Let's pray that God will help us and strengthen us to, be, to, to have integrity in the, in the quote-unquote little things. Even in the little things, we need God's help and God's strength to do that.
And as we move forward in faith in those smaller situations, God will open up some doors to glorify Him in some amazing ways in some larger situations. Let's see what comes, comes next here. What comes next is one of the most amazing statements of faith in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Now, that's huge. These men have big faith. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, they have taken the dream of chapter 2 to heart. God is sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar. God controls everything, even this situation. That's faith. That's big faith. But their next statement is even bigger faith. Verse 18. But if not, if not what? If God doesn't deliver us, that's what, he, that's what they're saying. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay, verse 17 is big faith. Verse 18 is gargantuan faith. These three young men recognize God's sovereign ability to deliver, but they also recognize God's sovereign choice whether to do so or not, and they trust God with that decision. How opposite that is from American health and wealth prosperity gospel preaching today that says that the mark of true faith is declaring what you want and then believing really, really hard that it's going to that is going to come to pass, that God's going to give it to you, and then it happens, whether that is healing of a terminal illness or a larger bank account. That's not faith in God. That's faith in faith, and that's unbiblical. The Bible doesn't tell you to have faith in faith. Have faith in God. Biblical faith is not about having faith to get whatever you want. Biblical faith is trusting a God who will do whatever he wants and believing that whatever he wants is best even if it doesn't line up with what you want. And these three young men have the kind of faith that not only trust God with their lives, they also have the kind of faith that trusts God with their deaths. For these three young men, the issue is not about deliverance. It's not about comfort. It's not about safety. It's about God's kingdom and how best they can serve it, how best they can glorify God. These men exemplify the attitude of the Apostle Paul, who said in Philippians chapter 1, it is my eager expectation that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. How can you put your life on the line for God on the mission field? How can you live faithfully for God, not bowing, not conforming, even in the middle of intense and even violent persecution? Only when you believe that death is gain. Friends, exemplary faith is to believe not in the guarantee of deliverance from the furnace. It is to believe that in following God, there is a greater reward that is superior to any earthly comfort or safety or pleasure in this world. That's the secret to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's amazing obedience to God here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith chapter in the Bible. Hebrews 11 features examples of those who have lived by faith. And it tells us that faith is not merely believing that God exists. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar believed that God exists. Biblical faith is more than that. Hebrews 11:6 tells us that faith is believing believing also yeah, yes, believing that God exists, obviously, but also that in seeking God there is great reward and great gain. That is faith. 
Hebrews 11 starts by recalling godly men like Abel and Noah and Abraham. Men known for their incredible obedience and faith in God's promises. But look what it says in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Oh, look, there's those words again. Strangers and exiles. And what was it that motivated these saints of old to live as God's people, even though it meant being strangers and exiles in the world? Go down to verse 16. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There is a city of God that has been prepared for the people of God, a homeland superior to anything in this present age. If you go down a few verses more, it speaks of Moses. Verse 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You think about that. Moses <clears throat> was a prince of Egypt. He had access to all the treasures and pleasures of Egypt, and he turns his back on them. That's an act of faith. He believes that in abandoning Egypt and becoming a stranger in exile for God, He's going to receive a treasure in God that far exceeds anything he could have enjoyed in Egypt. Go down to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire. Stop there. Quench the power of fire? That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was their faith that quenched the power of fire. But it wasn't faith in faith. It wasn't a faith that assured them that God would save their lives. Instead, in the context of Hebrews 11, we now know that it was a faith that assured them that whether they live for God or whether they die for God, that having God was better than anything else the world could offer. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, having God now and in the end is better than protection from being burned alive. It's better to have God and have the flesh melt off your bones in the flames than it is to have 60 years of comfort in Babylon and not have God. I believe that takes faith, doesn't it? And so my response, I, I pray alongside that, that man who came up to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to believe that more. And I hope you pray that too. These men believe what Jesus would say later on about the kingdom of God, that it is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And the point of that parable is that the value of having God and being part of his kingdom far surpasses the value of anything you might lose in the process of receiving the kingdom. These three young men believed death was gain and that if they were incinerated in the furnace, things would only get better for them. It was a win-win situation. And Harbin's church... You will never be able to live for God with radical, countercultural, non-conforming obedience to God until you believe that death is gain. Father, help us believe that. The final thing we see here is the preservation of God's people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are bound and thrown into the furnace. It's so hot that Nebuchadnezzar's henchmen are incinerated. But look what happens to the three Jewish men, verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, uh, Did we not cast three men into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king, 
And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There's some debate about the identity of the fourth man. Could he be an angel? Or could he be, as many, many believe, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Regardless, what is obvious is that you have a physical manifestation of the presence of God in the midst of his people in a time of great need. That's the big takeaway, that God is with them and God sustains and preserves them. And what's, what's also amazing, you see in verse 27, it says, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men, their, the, heads, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. That's amazing. Not even a hair <clears throat> was singed. God had fulfilled, literally, in that moment, his comforting promise to the exiles in Isaiah 43, where God said, Fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And notice in that promise that God doesn't promise that his people won't go through the fire. Trials and afflictions will be a part of the experience of God's people until the very end of the age. But what does God promise in Isaiah 43? What's the the greatest part of that promise that I just read to you? He says, I will be with you. The promise of his presence. It's its presence, his presence that will strengthen and sustain and preserve his people through whatever affliction they may be called to face. God's commitment to be with his people is ultimately expressed in the coming of Christ who is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came into a world full of sinners. And in Matthew 13, Christ the King, the true King, warns what He will do to all rebels who persist in their defiance of Him. He says this in Matthew 13, The Son of Man will send His angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's one of the most horrifying descriptions of hell in the whole Bible. It's like a fiery furnace, Jesus says. And the most important question before sinners, with the heat of hell coming closer day by day, The most important question echoes Nebuchadnezzar's question earlier. What God will deliver you out of Jesus' hands? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus did not come in his first advent to throw sinners into the fiery furnace. He came to go into the furnace himself so his people wouldn't have to. That's what the cross is all about. On the cross, he went through a fiery trial, more intense than anything Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through in Daniel chapter 3. Those three young men felt no pain or torment in the furnace, but Jesus suffered the fire of hell. He took our sins upon himself and bore God's holy wrath that we deserve for those sins on our behalf. And unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Christ did not enjoy the presence of God the Father as he was in the fire because the penalty for sin is exile from God's loving presence. Unlike those three faithful Jewish men, the perfectly faithful Son of God was alone in his affliction. What's more, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from death in that moment. The Son of God was not. But that's not the end of the story. Having paid the price for our sin, all who trust in Jesus alone for salvation will be forgiven and they need not fear the fiery furnace of hell. 
And because he rose from the dead, all who trust in him have the assurance that death is not something to be feared, it's something to be conquered. That's why Jesus can make this amazing promise in Luke 21. He says this to his disciples. This is incredible. I love this. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. But... Not a hair of your head will perish. Think about that one for a moment. That's incredible. You may die, but not even a hair of you will perish. While in Isaiah, God promises to preserve his people through the fire in Babylon, while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came through the fire without even a hair singed, he now promises to preserve his people even when the worst of all afflictions comes, death itself. He says, not a hair of your head will perish. All the people of God have to look forward to in the end is resurrection from the grave and everlasting joy with the Father forever. Just as God promised to be with the exiles in Babylon, He promises to be present with his exiles today because the resurrected Jesus said in Matthew 28, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, exiled people of God, if all you have is Christ, then you have all you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we believe Help our unbelief. Father, thank you that your son died for our unbelief. Father, would you give us strength? Would you increase faith in our lives so that when the heat is turned up through fiery trials, through pressure to conform, through all kinds of troubles and temptations, that we may stand firm and cling to you, not having faith in faith, but having trust in you, that you will hold us fast, and that if we have you, we have everything that we need. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.